Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with Stephen Brown, the Assistant Dean for Enrollment at Fordham University School of Law. Seven Sages' David Buses talks to Stephen about how students can finance their legal education and what Fordham is looking for in its applicant pool. Afterward, Stephen answers questions from the audience. So without further ado, enjoy the webinar. Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David, a partner at Seven Sage, and I'm so pleased to host Stephen Brown of Fordham Law. Stephen Brown is the Assistant Dean for Enrollment at Fordham University School of Law. Prior to returning to Fordham, he served at New York University School of Law, most recently as Director of Student Finance, Planning, and Institutional Research. He worked in financial aid at Columbia Law School and the New York Institute of Technology. Steve is a frequent presenter at NAFLA, Planck, Financial Aid, Admissions, AALS, ABA, Career and Student Services Conferences, and takes special interest both in policy and introducing new professionals to the field. He has served on the LSAC Programs and Services and Ad Hoc Financial Aid Subcommittees. On the student side, Steve is a champion of informed decision-making. The right school is the right fit at the right price for your long-term goals. Steve has been a consultant to law school admissions and financial aid offices, as well as nonprofit loan repayment assistance programs, LRAPs. He earned his BS in psychology and philosophy, his MS Ed in counseling from Fordham University, and his Master of Education in Counseling from Teachers College Columbia University. Steve reports that his first career in mental health counseling has made his life in law school administration so much easier. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Good evening. So, Stephen, my first question for you is just, what is your job at Fordham Law? Could you describe what you do? So, my, my primary job is working on the enrollment side with admissions and financial aid. Uh, so, I am involved from the beginning. We just brought a class in on Monday, and we, we start now recruiting. Applications are ready to go. Um, LSAC will release them September 15th and uh, we'll be on the road on the Duke next week, and then in, um, where am I, the week after, uh, at Mink uh, in the Midwest, and starting recruiting. I work with a team, the, the best team in, in admissions in the country, uh, in the admissions office, and incredibly strong financial aid office. Well, speaking of recruiting, Stephen, I'd love it if you could just tell us a little bit more about Fordham Law. Sure. So, so Fordham is in New York City. Uh, we're in the heart of the city. We're in the southwest corner of Central Park. Uh, we're celebrating our fifth year in our new building. Uh, five years and 20 days, but who's counting? And we're a large law school, an urban law school. Part of the advantage of being large and, uh, is that we can offer many uh, different programs, uh, many specialties. We bring in a class of 400, have, have faculty, 400 a year, have faculty, 84 full-time, and we're very pleased with our adjuncts. We bring in over 100 adjuncts. They teach mostly in the evening, and they're experts in the area. Um, our specialties are certainly corporate. Um, we're, we're recognized one of the top 20 this year, top 15 schools for graduating uh, folks into big law, uh, particularly in New York, but strong international human rights programs, strong public interest programs, um, strong intellectual property, ranging from hardcore uh, patent law uh, for scientists uh, who are coming working to uh, 
cybersecurity and computers. We do fashion. Um, we have lots of strengths, again, an advantage of being large. Thanks. I know that you're especially interested in the question of how students can finance their legal education. How can students finance their legal education? Yeah, well, it's <laughs> certainly you can. That's the great thing um, about the federal loan programs is most students, most U.S. citizens and permanent residents, and we'll talk about international students in a minute, but, but students can borrow. The frightening part is they can borrow a lot. And that's where the challenge comes in. Uh, it feels like not so long ago, but when I started at Columbia back in 1986, most a student could borrow for law school was $24,000 for all three years combined. Now it's the rare law school that has tuition of less than $24,000 for one year. Uh, so students can borrow. There's a federal loan program. Um, students can borrow direct loans up to $20,500 a year. And provided they have an absence of bad credit, can borrow the rest of the cost of attendance plus other aid. So big words, let me uh, define cost of attendance for a little bit. Every school sets their own. And it's similar to cost of attendance at the undergraduate level, where schools come up with their own estimate of tuition and fees, obviously, then room and board, books and supplies, personal expenses, living expenses, uh, for the time that you're a student. And uh, students should pay attention to that. It's going to be different. There are 15 schools in the greater New York area. We all have very different living expenses. There are different philosophies, even though some schools are in the same neighborhood. So students should pay attention to the cost of attendance. So the borrowing is big. There are no Pell Grants at the law school level. Very few state grants. It's kind of this Jeffersonian world. We, we should have an educated citizenship so everyone should have a bachelor's degree. Um, uh, that changes and, and you look at who's the primary beneficiary of a law school education. And if it's society and graduates are working in government or public interest, there's a loan forgiveness program. And if people are going into the private sector, they're, they're a primary beneficiary and they're paying. So that's why the loans are there. Uh, the last 10 years, there has been a lot more merit-based aid uh, being offered by schools. Free money, scholarship money offered by schools uh, to recruit students. And we call it merit money and merit is different at different schools. Certainly schools have different LSAT and GPA targets. Uh, some are using merit money for diversity, be it racial and ethnic, geographic, gender. Uh, so, so there's money out there Nationally, some 60% of students are receiving some type of institutional aid. Now, there are schools that have 100% of their students who are funded, and others very small percentages, but overall about 60%. Thanks. That's a helpful overview. So I want to sort of go to the beginning of the process chronologically. When students are applying, is there anything they need to keep in mind, or is this all stuff that they should just worry about later after they get the applications in and decisions are made? So generally, the, the first step is indeed the application. Uh, and most law, some law schools are, are opening up next week. Um, September 1st is the earliest uh, some law schools can apply again. We're the 15th. Schools are a little later than that. The FAFSA is a free application for federal student aid. It is the free application for federal student aid. If, if you search fafsa.gov, which is actually the correct website, you will get a free application. If you search something else, you may 
hit a website that charges you $74.50 to complete your free application. It is free. Don't pay uh, to complete the application. You can start now, uh, beginning two years ago, uh, you can now start using, uh, start applying in October, after October 1st. So you can log into FAFSA.gov. If you've applied for aid before, it's just an update uh, to your free federal, free application for federal student aid. Um, if you have not applied for financial aid before, uh, you can set up an account at that time. And you're looking at prior prior year income. So it would be 2017 income, um, 2018 income uh, that students would be using next year on the FAFSA. So, so taxes that are done already, uh, that were done last year. All graduate and professional students, so law students are professional students, are independent for federal aid purposes. Parents' information is not required for federal aid purposes. And yeah, at some level, there is no need-based federal aid for graduate and professional students. Um, so there's no real need to determine uh, need, uh, no reason to determine needs. Parents' information is not required. Now check with your schools, because some schools that offer need-based scholarship will collect it for free um, on the FAFSA, and they may require parents' information. And schools are looking, students look the same, basically poor. Um, so some schools awarding institutional aid, need-based aid, are looking at family financial strength. So be sure to check with the schools. Uh, but, but the process can happen throughout the fall, even into early spring, uh, be before you're starting to hit deadlines with applying for the loans. Certainly take advantage of studentloans.gov. It's a federal website and they do a really good job um, of, of providing lots of information. Look to the school's website. Schools will detail whether they award aid on a need basis, whether they award aid on a merit basis, whether it's some combination, and what forms you need to fill out. Thank you. So I want to ask a couple questions about a couple of different categories, merit-based aid, need-based aid, um, public service loan forgiveness programs, and finally just how students can evaluate what school they should go to and what's worth their cost. <laughs> So let's start though with merit-based aid. Is there anything students can do as they're putting together an application to increase their merit-based aid? Find out what the schools are. The first, the first step is to find out what the schools are looking for, um, how the schools are evaluating merit. What, and many of us will say this on our website. You know, at Fordham, we're looking primarily to GPA and LSAT. Um, other schools may be looking to different things. Uh, it, it, most schools are looking at GPA and LSAT. You may have heard of this magazine called US News. It ranks schools. Uh, and 40% you know, of the ranking is um, student quality and it's GPA and LSAT. You know, so schools are looking for, uh, to, to pay for, to buy at some very real level their medians. Uh, so you know, students should, should look to that if, if you're, GPA and LSAT are much lower than a school's medians. You may or may not get in, uh, but you may not wind up with merit aid. And we've see, seen students who have full tuition at some schools and, and no merit, full tuition merit aid, and no merit aid at other schools because they fall in different places in the student body. So, so that is the long answer to the question. Uh, what can you do GPA? You can't do too much about unless you're tuning in as a freshman or sophomore, or as a freshman or sophomore. Um, LSAT, you can prepare for and take. It's, it's, it's a test that 
uh, and now GRE for some 20% of schools. Um, they're both tests you can prepare for, you can take, um, you can do well, and, and that matters. And we're seeing LSAC lifted their rules for retaking LSATs. There had not been no rules for retaking GREs, so we're seeing students actually do some not so smart things in terms of preparation. Uh, they're taking it for fun or they're taking that first test and oh well, let me see how I'll do and uh, better to prepare and take it as few times as possible. I'm assuming though that you make the decision of merit aid based on the highest score is that incorrect? Uh, the same as admissions well, schools may do different things most of us will, will base it on the highest score. Uh, a few uh, yeah, more than a few years ago uh, the ABA and the US News both um, change the reporting. For many years, we looked at the average score on the LSAT because that was the best, was and still is the best predictor of, of first year grades. Uh, but so many schools have been re reporting the high score that that's um, now what we can use. So students don't have to worry about averaging. Just talk to an alumnus who's all concerned. Is apparently, LSAT scores uh, for July came out today. Uh, and we were getting a bunch of calls, and uh, that's it. if they average, this is going to be terrible. So no, yeah, things happen, um, and uh, schools don't average. Stephen, I know that more and more students are getting savvy enough to request a reconsideration, uh, especially by showing you other offers from comparable schools. Yes. Does that work at Fordham? And uh, you know. When should students do that? And I guess how pushy can they be? Can they ask more than once? <laughs> so, so appealing, so schools have different policies for appealing. Um, feel free to appeal at us at Fordham. So this is now Fordham answer. Um, but we will probably say no. Um, we, we really try to, admissions, we take lots of interesting people and, and numbers matter for merit-based aid purposes and need-based aid, numbers matter. Um, and, and that's kind of primary for us. So, so we're looking at LSAT and GPA. Um, we tend to make our best offers first. I, we, very few students successfully appealed. Um, we know that we compete with schools that where our, our students are in the very top of their, that, those classes and being offered lots of merit money. Um, we also compete with schools you know, on the other side where students are getting no money because they're in the bottom of that class but the top of ours. Uh, there are other schools who are very public. They say, you know, these are our competitors. If you have an offer from the competitors, um, send it to us and we'll adjust your award. Uh, so schools are all over. You should talk to the schools. Uh, advice, be nice. Um, help us. Help us want to help you. Uh, the, the, the easy denials and the ones that and perhaps some of your li the listeners have, have had my response to the easy denials, you know, if you don't give me this money, I'm not coming. So, and the response is, well, we'll withdraw you from the class, no problem, um, because we're not giving you the money, we're, we're not giving the appeal. Again, other schools are more than happy. We have seen students over the summer have their scholarships increased by schools. Or the school was nervous about perhaps losing the student or had more money or guessed wrong. So uh, it's really individual. I mean, a lot of what I'll say tonight is check with your schools. It's not that I'm 
not knowledgeable. It's not that I'm kind of ducking the question, but schools do different things. And sometimes schools change policies you know, during an awarding season, during an admission season, depending on what they're seeing in the class. That's very helpful. Thank you. Let's move on to need-based aid. So, uh, you know, my understanding of need-based aid is that it's based on your need and it doesn't seem like there's much you can do to change that. But I'll put the question to you. Is there anything to do to increase their need-based aid? So, so schools will use, so federally there is no need-based aid. There, there are no subsidies. 2014 is actually part of a Highway Act. Congress did away with the subsidy for graduate professional students. So on the FAFSA, no matter how much you earned prior prior year, the, the, the two years ago, doesn't matter. Um, you as a student could earn a you know, million dollars a year and you're still eligible for the 20,500 in unsubsidized loan, in unsubsidized direct loan, and then the grad plus in cost of attendance plus other eight. So yeah, the, the issue of, of income at all is useless. And the group of us have proposed to the Department of Education, they could actually, for graduate and professional students, since there's no need-based aid, you know, they could come up with eight questions to ask, and that should be enough. The Department of Ed has not taken our advice, um, for better or worse. So, so uh, schools award institutional aid following different policies, uh, institutional need-based aid. And those are tough because just like merit-based aid, schools will have their own policies. Some will look at parents, some will not look at parents. Some will look at parents um, below a certain age or above a certain age. Some will discount for parents. So, so there's no universal answer. Got it. Can you explain how public service loan forgiveness programs work? Sure. So 2007, we do a flashback. Um, public service loan forgiveness was created. Congress created it. The, the goal was students were borrowing, especially graduate and professional students, uh, and uh, law students were, were heavy lobbyists, and law schools were heavy lobbyists for this program. But students were borrowing a lot of money and choosing not to take public service jobs because of the uh, because they couldn't afford the loan payment. Um, this was before they were income-driven loan repayment programs. Uh, and and it wasn't working. So Congress said, yeah, there are other, there are teacher programs out there, there are doctor programs out there. Let's set up a program for anybody who's going to spend a career in government or public service. So they did. Uh, and started in 2007, and, and the requirements are you work in government, federal, state, local, or tribal, or a nonprofit. The clear, clearest, cleanest definition of a nonprofit is an an organization organized under 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. And there's been a lot of noise back and forth about people who are working for nonprofits, but they're not C3s. The law specifies C3 and a host of other organizations. Um, so C3 is government, 501c3, 10 years of service, 120 months. They need not be consecutive. And borrower students, uh, graduates, have to repay their loans in one of these approved programs, whether it's a 10-year standard program or income-based repayment or pay-as-you-earn or repay. And, and the rules are pretty simple. Um, where the challenges come in is some of the early borrowers, and there's a lot of um, news coming out almost weekly 
um, about public service loan forgiveness. And is, is this good? Will it last? President Obama tried to kill it to fund Pell Grants. Uh, twice the President Trump's White House budgets tried to kill it to fund other things. Uh, it hasn't died. And, and, and indeed, looking at uh, some of the many Democratic candidate proposals, uh, there, there's an expansion of the program uh, being proposed. At any rate, 10 years, government or, non or 501c3 nonprofit and paying under one of the approved payments. Uh, you'll see the Congressional Budget Office, uh, Government Accountability Office has done reports saying, showing that not many people have received forgiveness. And that was due in part to very few students borrowing through the direct loan program until 2010. Um, direct loan program was created, interestingly enough, as part of the Affordable Care Act or the expanded direct loan program. Uh, and then the repayment programs, the IBR and the pay as you earn and repay um, were only created after 2009 and then after 2014. Um, so bars were not in the right repayment program. The other advice we, we give our students who are graduating, pay attention. You know, make sure you make your payments on time. Make sure you are in a correct um, payment program. You're dealing with servicers through the Department of Education. And, and many of the complaints with servicers are that bars got bad information. So, so you're lost lawyers by the time uh, you're repaying these loans. Uh, treat these contracts like lawyers. Think of about you're representing yourself as your own client um, with the Department of Education. Steve, just to be clear, this uh, public service loan repayment program, it doesn't forgive all of your law school debt, right? It only forgives your uh, direct uh, Stafford loans? It only forgives your federal loans. So it's the federal direct Stafford loans and the federal direct graduate plus loans. Oh, okay. It refunds both of those. So it, it pays for both of those. It pays for undergraduate loans, direct loans, or student. Uh, direct, so direct loans, the undergraduate level come in two flavors: subsidized and unsubsidized. Both of those count. Then graduate plus and and graduate direct unsubsidized loans. Parent plus do not. Okay. There's another. If your parents borrowed for you at the undergraduate level, do some research on that. It's more complex than we have time for. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And um, I know there, there are also uh, schools offer loan repayment assistance programs. So let's just start by defining um, in a really simple way what those are. So, so they're similar to and actually predate the federal program. Um, schools offer them. There are five or six schools who offer a substantial amount of money. There are another 50 who offer less substantial amounts of money. Again, there are real differences among schools. The question is not, do you have a loan forgiveness program or LRAP, loan repayment assistance program? Uh, it's more, can tell me the details. Um, what loans are included? Some of the school programs will wrap around, will assume, the federal program will assume you're making payments on a 10-year basis, others won't. Some last for one year, some last for five years, some last for the 10. Um, so, so there are real differences, but most of many of the school programs predate the federal and, and they work in conjunction. Uh, although there are some schools where um, government or nonprofit is not a requirement for the school based loan repayment assistance program, though it is for the federal. Very few schools, but there are some schools whose programs are very generous. 
And so these schools are forgiving the loans that they themselves give their students. Is that right? And the federal loans. Oh, I see. I see. And the federal loans. So, so we have a program that lasts for five years, and, and we will pay for graduates who are working in government or public interest. A uh, little broader definition of public interest, but we'll pay on the basis of the graduates or alumni's actual payments, whether it's on a 10-year program or whether it's on one of these income contingent programs or income-based repayments. Uh, other schools will pay only on the income-driven plans. Um, other schools may have a broader definition of service. Others may have a more narrow definition of service. Depends on the focus for the schools, um, their funding, uh, and the way it works in conjunction with the federal program. How can students actually decide, you know, what's worth the cost? It just seems like there are so many factors, right? So I'm looking, I'm thinking about like, oh, I could go to this school that's higher ranked, but it's more expensive. I could go to this school that's lower ranked. It's less expensive. They're giving more money. I don't know what my employment prospects will be. They have different LRAP programs. Not sure how to evaluate that. This is complicated. And, and, and uh, some students will remind us they're not going to business school. So, so don't make them use a spreadsheet or don't make them do math. Uh, but I think that's really important. And when we have, and I have conversations with students, first question is always, what do you think you want to do? No, don't ask me that question. I don't want to deal with that. I don't know. I want to be a lawyer. Uh, good. Uh, but, but that's not going to help in the decision-making process. So, and, and you, know, you don't have to decide, and many people change their mind uh, while they're in law school, but, but as you're selecting, that becomes important. And again, we're asking you to think out a whole bunch of years. It was less important when law school tuition was a lot less expensive, um, when you couldn't kind of make that mistake or couldn't overborrow. The, um, so the first question is, what do you think you want to do? And, and then how will the school prepare me to, to meet those goals? Um, yeah, are, are you looking at big law? Um, well, you know, now, oh, so I'll talk to everybody, 509 reports, 509 reports. So the ABA schools, for many years, it was kind of the Wild West and schools' interpretations of reporting a lot of data. Uh, our creditor, the American Bar Association, stepped in and for several years now are requiring schools to provide lots of consumer information. Every law school website you will visit has on the front page of the website and the front page of the admissions website, ABA consumer disclosures or ABA required disclosures uh, and, and the part of the accreditation code is, is 509 and we all have to provide lots of information on admissions, on financial aid, keeping financial aid, keeping scholarships because some schools uh, renewing scholarship depend on rank and class. Uh, lots of information on placement and employment. And I was actually talking to somebody a few weeks ago who you know, is taking a full tuition scholarship at a school where they sent three people to law firms of, of 101 plus, which is considered big law. And, and that's her goal. And so you don't have to come to us uh, because it was somebody we were not giving money to. But, but it, you know, think about the reality and there's math involved. You know, if there's a class of 100 and three people went into that job, some of it was self-selection, um, but some of it may be that it's hard to get a job there. Um, it may be hard to get a public interest job. Uh, remember that you know, even if, if you have, if you're thinking public interest, uh, that's great. There are schools that specialize in that. And there are other schools who have loan forgiveness programs. 
Um, but the flip side of that, even if you're receiving full tuition um, at the schools, you're still going to have to borrow for living expenses. And that borrowing may be substantial. So, so you do have to pay attention to that. Yes, there's federal public service loan forgiveness, and it starts at a relatively low income in relationship to your debt. Uh, but you have to be looking at all of this. And, and you have to do it on your own. Our schools will answer. Again, there, there's lots of auditable um, reports that, that are given out. That's the time to talk to the schools. All right. Well, you have just given us so much information that I'm sure our participants have questions. Good. I'm going to turn it over to them. If you have a question, I'll ask you to raise your hand. We like hearing your voices. We'll call on you. You'll get a chance to ask it yourself. And uh, we can also take some questions if you type them. When you are unmuted and you can ask your question. My question is that I'm taking my September and November LSAT. Will you consider a November LSAT score disadvantage for both scholarship and admission? And also, can I apply with a September score, then update my score later with my November score? Good, good questions. So the first is take September, plan on taking it, plan on doing well. Uh, if I saw you live, say, what is this November thing? Why are you planning to not do well in September? Plan on doing well in September and hopefully it's a one-time experience. The longer answer is it depends on the school. Uh, November for almost all of us is still early. September is very early. Uh, you know, some schools have early decision programs, follow those rules. Some have early action programs, follow those rules. Uh, we, we will get uh, probably 10% of our applicants before Thanksgiving. At Fordham, that's Fordham specific, that, that's us. We have an early action program. Uh, if you're before Thanksgiving, you are probably early. Uh, so November results will come out early December. That's still probably early. For some schools for whom that matters, I've heard from students in the last few days um, that they're hoping that they get their September scores, and I understand they're out today, to yeah, try to get in last minute off the waiting list, or they use June scores. So it really does depend on the school. And ask the schools, we'll be honest with you. Uh, at Fordham, you know, January is good, we will accept other scores later, but you know, the, the earlier, the better in the application process, earlier being before January 1st. Thank you very much. Steve, I actually have a follow-up question, and it has to do with how many LSAT takes is too many. Let's say that you have one spot left, and you have identical twins applying. They have the same GPA, equally good essays, everything is the same, except that one of them has a score of 163, which is, let's say, one point below your median for the, the median you're targeting for the given year. And one of them has five LSAT takes, and they're, they're like 143, 147, 155, but they climb up to a 164, which hits your median. So do you give the one spot you have to the person who has a, an LSAT score, one LSAT score that's one point below your median, or five LSAT scores that eventually reach your median? Great question. Uh, no two people are absolutely identical, even, even genetically identical people. Uh, and we have twins, and we, we have, actually, we have, husband and wife in this year's class. We have two brothers. We have a brother and a sister in last year's class. It, it's, 
it's more than just numbers. I, I'm, I'm a geek. I can write great programs and do planning. Um, there'll be something different in those personal statements. There'll be something different in the letters of recommendation. So, so, so that's the absolutely true answer. Um, but how do we interpret multiple LSATs is, is another version of the question. And it, it, it's, like, it's a great evidence question. Uh, for first year of law, so you don't take evidence in first year. Um, you've created doubt. I mean, the reason I say, so take, take the LSAT once or, or once or twice, uh, if you don't do well um, and your GPA is not so good, and then you take the LSAT again and you super prep and get a very high LSAT, some schools will say, great, you're a split. We need that high LSAT. That's going to it's higher than our median. It will affect the class. We'll take you. Other of us are saying, hmm, based on the two LSATs or five LSATs, what's the right score? You know, is, is this somebody who woke up and came late to the game? Um, is it somebody who you know, had a not so great GPA um, and decided they were going to beat it and, and get the split? Again, there are some schools who will actively pursue someone like that, but, but you're creating doubt. You know, once you have two scores that are different, schools are saying, schools that pay attention to this, and we get 5,400 applications, so for 400 seats. So, so we have a lot of choice, and, and you've created some doubt with those low LSATs. Which, which one is real? And when our faculty readers read, we'll see notes like that. This person has four LSATs or five LSATs. Um, what's the right one? Or, yeah, 143, 145, 142, 147, 160. Yeah, there are four clustered. Yeah, geek and statistician, there are four clustered. That's probably the right score. And any score, as you mentioned, below, for us, below 164, below our median, is below our median, whether it's a 163 or a 120. It's not affecting our median but we do pay attention to those scores because there is a correlation. It's somewhere around a 0.4 between LSATs and first year grades. And whether it's a test of reading speed, as some are positing, um, or, or whether it's, it's a really well-designed test, and it is, um, that, that correlation is there and it's better than nothing. You know, a 0.4 in social science is, is not a great correlation. It explains 40% of the variance. Um, but it's better than having nothing, no percent of the variance explained. Thank you. That was very helpful. Okay, so anyone else can raise your hand. I'm going to let... Um, um, I'm looking at the chat. I love the last comment from Emily. Faculty read their applications? Yes, faculty read our applications. Uh, everybody who's admitted at Fordham um, is admitted by a full-time tenured faculty member, or two or three, uh, as well as an administrator. Uh, the American Bar Association said faculty should have a role in, in the admissions process. Uh, in some cases, it's advisory and consultatory. It's great when, when we have two or three faculty disagree um, about an application. But yes, faculty read our applications. Um, faculty admit our students. That's helpful. And I, I assume that there are also, so there are admissions staff and faculty readers? Yes, admissions professionals and faculty readers admissions professionals and faculty readers. And so how exactly does it work? Is everything passed to the faculty? Can the faculty veto? Do they just give inputs? And then uh, the admissions professionals make the final decisions? 
No, the faculty make the final decisions. Ah. Um, and they will remind us they make the final decisions. They're faculty. Uh, they're lawyers. They're, they're good at this. These are people who they're going to teach. So, so again, personal statements matter and, and you know, students' attitudes matter. Uh, we had people, we released our wait list yesterday and, and then a few more people today. So there was no more wait list at Fordham this year. Our classes started Monday. And students are calling. I was on the wait list. You know, I, I applied in June, uh, but my LSAT and GPA are super, and you needed to admit me. And how did you not admit me? And they go on and say, oh, this is great. Um, we made the right decision because you can't feel that entitled uh, as you come into class. It's, it's all about working and playing well together. Um, and, and that's important to us. So yeah, some people have professional and a faculty, some may have two professionals and a faculty, one professional and two faculty. Um, it, it's not partly because they're faculty, you know, and I just got myself fired, partly because they're faculty. Uh, it, it's not quite the same in, in going through everybody and, and faculty will refer um, students to each other, will refer people to certain faculty. Um, it, for us, it's a fun process. We, we really want, we, we have a class, I have to afford a commercial, we, we have a class that um, works and plays well together. Our students get jobs, so there's competition. We have lots of type A people and we're very selective, but they're also really good at working with each other. And we think some of that comes through the admissions process. Um, yeah, we, we can, if personal statements matter, letters of recommendation matter. Got it. I see a great question from Rashida. Do you read the writing sample on the LSAT? Depends. Um, so now the writing sample on the LSAT is going to be taken independently of the test and is going to be taken on computer. Um, and we hope we will see the writing sample in the same font. Uh, some people's writing is terrible. Uh, physically, have bad handwriting. Um, others don't. We won't read their writing and again, it depends on faculties. One of my faculty um, reviewers will read the writing sample for everybody. Um, we'll get cues on, on whether to read the writing sample or not. You know, does a letter of recommendation say this person is a great writer? Um, that, that'll trigger a writing sample. Is there maybe an English usage um, question? Uh, was a personal statement maybe not so good? Um, are we looking for something else? So, so sometimes, and I won't say often, I'm not going to give you a percentage because I don't know it. I want to be accurate. Um, but we will look at the writing sample. I expect we will look at more of them because now it's not a challenge to handwriting. Uh, but writing sample is important. It's an easy way to get denied. Draw pictures, we, we will deny you. Um, write somewhere in the middle of your paragraph, and we you know, this did so. You know, you're probably not even reading that. We'll deny you. Uh, you know, take it seriously. Uh, we we want to see yeah, a personal statement uh, is polished. A personal statement. Actually, another reason we'll look at writing seen personal statements that are 15 um, or 10 or 15 paragraphs long, and each one seems like it was edited differently. Um, then we'll look at the writing sample because we want the student's voice, not some editor's voice. That's very helpful. So the person who is trying to ask a question asks, how much does work experience play a part in your decision? 
And what if it's not directly related to law? For example, in engineering. Ah, we like engineers. Um, so it, it's important. So, so we looked at this. We looked at this a lot. Um, so this year's class, two thirds of our class have two or more years work experience. Um, Nine percent have one year um, work experience, and twenty-five percent of full quarter of our class are coming right from school. This is a trend that's been growing that way for a while. Our faculty asked. Um, yeah, are we discriminating? Are, are we treating people differently? Um, and, and we looked at that. And one of the things that's important to us is the personal statement. So we gave personal statements to faculty who were not on the admissions committee, rate the personal statements. And it tended that we saw this, and we did a few years ago, personal statements of people who had two or more years, because that was a cutoff for us, of work experience were judged to be more motivated, more mature, and actually have better technical writing skills. Um, so that matters. We want to see the work doesn't have to be law related. Uh, so you don't have to have work experience. As I said, fully a quarter of the class does not. Many have had internships. There are even some students who are you know, finishing orientation and started classes um, yesterday because they're part of orientation who have no work experience. We, we like people who are in touch with the world a little bit. Employers are looking at the back end for people who have work experience. Someone who could get a job, who could interview, who could get a job, who could show up for work on time, uh, behave while they were working, not get themselves fired, maybe get a promotion. Those become important in the process. Again, you don't have to have that, um, but schools will look at that. And, and that, is important it, it, it again shows shows you, you you have the work you can get the work you have some maturity you have some experience it will help in, in the job situation but you know we have people we actually have two world-renowned concert violinists violinists in the entering class this year um, three actors at least one of whom many people might recognize um, uh, we have lots of engineers. We have people uh, in all phases of engineering, um, from electrical and computer science and hardcore uh, programming, um, through civil engineers. We have someone who is working on the East River swing bridges. That's part of what makes it fun related, uh, but people who work in construction because it's a family business. Um, that's fine for us. It, it, uh, if it's law related or yeah, we, we do like people who've worked in responsible jobs and progressively responsible jobs and the big advantage for people who've worked are letters of recommendation because then you can get a letter of recommendation from, from your employer saying this is a wonderful person that solves problems is great working hey Joshua you can unmute yourself and ask your question Hi, um, it kind of builds off what we were just talking about, but how would a, uh, the admission process differ if you're dealing with someone who's 30 plus, uh, hasn't been to school in a while, uh, with a lot of um, work background? So, so, tell us, so, so tell us about that in the process. We do have people, you know, I, I was talking to who, uh, <laughs> three or four 40 year olds today who are calling themselves geezers, which makes me anxious. <laughs> Um, but uh, we have students who, who are coming back. We have uh, several people who've retired after 20 years, whether well, it's military or police or, or other civil service jobs, 
that works. We obviously won't have letters of recommendation um, from folks at the undergraduate level, and that's fine. Um, we, we will have an undergraduate GPA. We certainly discount that less. Now, again, that's for people who are out a significant number of years. We always get the question, oh, I'm an old student, or my GPA is really old. I graduated in 2017. Um, don't count it. No, we count it. Schools like older students, um, students, schools like students who they have that work experience. Again, at the back end, it's a professional school, so it's about jobs. And at the back end, we want to see people who are positioned well to get jobs. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I like this question. What has compelled admissions in the past to admit a student who is below the medians? The student is interesting. Yeah, that's the student can do the work. Right? We really want to see if the student can do the work. That's important. Um, and you know, that's where LSAT's matter, that's where undergraduate records matter. Is this somebody who's going to be at risk? We don't want to set people up for failure. And, and there's a right school for everybody. The person who's coming in below the medians is bringing something else to the class rather than just the medians. And it may be work experience, it may be the school they attended, it may be activities at school for people coming right out of, out of, out of college. Maybe great internships and letters of recommendation for their great community involvement. Uh, the, the student with lower numbers has to bring something else to the school. That makes sense. How significantly can a personal statement set you apart from your numbers? Oh, absolutely. Personal statement, you could be denied. So generally, we are just faculty, so that everybody's a little different, and even by administrators. But generally, we start with personal statement. Who is this person? We admit people. We don't admit numbers. If we're all about numbers, it's a computer program, and we could admit numbers. We admit people. So we read the personal statement. There are some people who are denied on the basis of the personal statement before we even have a chance to look at the numbers, before we even care. Who are these people? Um, people who have grammatical mistakes, those are the easy ones. Uh, people who write wonderful personal statements and say, and that's why I'm the best candidate for some school other than Fordham. Um, in the old days, we'd circle that and mail it back with the denial letter. Um, there are other students who in the personal statement really indicate they can't work and play well with others, or they have opinions, and anybody who disagrees with my opinion is stupid. Well, law school is about a constant test of opinions. Um, law school, you're going to be exposed to things that you may not have been exposed to at the undergraduate level. You're going to have to deal with difficult things. That's what lawyers do. You want to be able to see all two or three or seven sides of an argument. And, and, and you can easily lose that in a personal statement. So who are the people we took off the wait list uh, in, in the last few weeks of summer? People, some had high grades and scores, some didn't. But they were really interesting. It's like we would miss out if we didn't have this person, but we didn't have room for them. They may have applied late. Um, some may have taken the LSAT. So, so personal statements, again, ask the school. Some schools, it's about the numbers, uh, and, and it's only about the numbers. They don't, may not have many applications. Um, it's pretty cool. Oh, I'm going to comment on this question just popped up about the most detailed non-criminal character and fitness questions of any schools. So, so if you look at the New York Bar Examiner site, which is newyorkbarexam.org, you will see that Fordham's questions look just like the New York Bar Exam questions. In fact, they are identical word for word. 
and many schools will do that. We send the majority. We're, we're the greatest law, you know, local law school in the country. The majority of our graduates after graduation are working within five miles of the place. You know, five miles of Fordham is a really good place to be working. Uh, you know, you're in the, in the heart of, of New York City. Uh, so, so that's a question that's important, and and we ask it because the New York bar examiners will ask the same question, and they want to see continuity. Please, 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 whether it's for Fordham or other schools, read the questions. Schools will ask different questions. Um, there's some states now that prohibit questions. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with character and fitness. Please be honest. The worst thing to do is for you to skip it or lie or try to have an addendum or if that's not the worst thing, all, all of that, well, the, the worst thing is getting caught. Um, the worst thing is the bar examiner in a classic case of, of one of our graduates who you know, graduated like in, in 1990-something, had a great job, was running a New York office, was sent out to Los Angeles to, the, to start an office in California, had to take the California bar. Um, all of the state bar exams, you will give permission for the schools to release the, um, your law school application. And they will look at these character and fitness questions. Apparently, this person did not had forgotten about or tried to sneak by a DWI in 1980-something. Um, had to appear before the Character and Fitness Committee in California. It added another three or four months to his taking, to being approved um, for the California bar. He passed the exam first time. That's a big deal. Read the questions, answer the questions. Stuff happens. We know stuff happens. Students are young and foolish. Schools enforce school rules in very different ways. Some are very aggressive, some aren't, whether it's alcohol or drug policies. There is nothing you have done. You're clear up to murdering somebody and serving time in jail. That's going to surprise us. Um, so please be honest in the process. You know, a strike for many schools are you know, a pattern. You know, is it, you know, <laughs> speeding doesn't count in some many schools, you know, it will say minor traffic violations don't count or unindictable offenses don't count, read the questions. But if you have nine arrests for speeding, you're obviously there's something going on with learning. Uh, because you haven't either figured out how not to do it or that there are consequences, or you have disrespect for the law, uh, depending on, on the interpretations. Um, same thing with drug or alcohol violations at schools. Um, and, and we see some of that. Explain it. Um, let us know better to deal with that on the admission side and have us follow up than to have it be an issue for uh, bar certification. That's a, that is a great, great little reminder for everyone. Yeah, and, and yeah, if there are, I'm seeing question, yeah, if, if there are special circumstances, tell us. Uh, that's fine. Again, there's nothing, you're not going to surprise us. Uh, people, I'm embarrassed this happened, I got caught once. Yeah, again, a, a favorite was somebody <laughs> who, this surprised us, but it was good. Uh, it was underage, went to college, went to a frat party during orientation in college, uh, was drinking, was, was drinking illegally, uh, walked up to this car that was parked in front of that frat house on the street, knocked on the window with their beer bottle, and a police officer rolled down the window and promptly arrested the student. Interestingly enough, that, that student is now a Fordham grad. Uh, we allow you to be young and foolish. 
but but there's nothing that will surprise us. And and if there's a story, if there's if there's anything in the application, so this ties maybe to a question about you know, other academic stuff and things that were going on in the family. You know, let us know. Don't surprise us. You know, we had somebody who I think we, we eventually denied, but kept a little bit in the wait list, who had you know, a semester with a terrible GPA. What happened? We assumed something happened in this person's life, um, whether it was family, whether it was breakup, whether no matter what it is, again, we've heard it. And sometimes it's embarrassing. Do that in addendum. Don't put that in a personal statement. But let us know. Then then there's no worry. You know, sometimes it, you indulge our wild fantasy lives. And were you in jail? Um, you know, were you, you know, what could possibly have happened you know, if there are two years missing from your uh, uh, resume? Uh, what could possibly have caused, you know, if your GPA is up and down, and it was because of academic issues or it was because of family issues. So we say, well, the pattern is up and down. Is she going to be up and down while she's in law school? So the more you can tell us that if there's something unusual, we want to hear about it because then we know, ah, okay, it was unusual, it happened once, or it happened twice, or it happens when this happens in your life. So, so the more we know, the better off you will probably be. Again, we're trying to find the right fit, but, but we also don't don't let us <laughs> kind of indulge, oh, this is what really happened. Because that happens sometimes, we are human. And if you get nothing else out of this, admissions people are human. That's also a helpful reminder. So let's see if we can get to two more questions. Um, there are so many good ones, but uh, Anna, or no, sorry, Lexi wants to know, what do you think of students who essentially take time off to study for the LSAT? Yeah, so do something else. Uh, do some volunteering, maybe work part-time. Uh, LSAT preparation is important. You know, look to all the varieties of LSAT preparation that are out there. Remember now all the tests are electronic. Um, so it's, it's a new way of both thinking and reacting to the test. It's all tablet-based. Um, so, so you're going to have to do some preparation for that, but do something, um, because now, yeah, the, the fantasy we have is that you sleep till noon and you study, you practice, because it's not studying for else that's really practice, because it's a learnable skill, um, practice for a few hours and then go back to sleep or do something else. Tell us you're working 10 hours a week as a volunteer or 20 hours a week or working part-time. You know, law school is going to... You know, it's most schools are 15 hours, of coursework. So you're in class for 15 hours, you're preparing for somewhere between 30 and 45. Uh, that's a lot of time. If, if you've spent all your time preparing for the LSAT, again, it, it, it's like multiple LSATs. It may raise doubt for us. Thank you. Uh, Kushi, you can ask your question. Um, I wanted to ask you that um, if I have a low LSAT score and I plan on taking the test again, um, because I took the July test um, and I can look at my score and cancel it. So should I cancel the first low score or leave it there to show that I've improved because I'm confident that the next time I write the test, the score will be higher? So, so that's a question. That's a, it's not quite a stumped me question, but, but one, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, if, if you're absolutely confident you will do better the next time around. You made uh, and it's really low for you. Then you might think about canceling it. If it's only a little low, 
um, and you think you're going to improve, then there's some insurance. That's the floor. And you know you won't be reporting or schools won't be, schools won't be reporting a score that's lower than that. You know, people have different views of what low is. Um, if it's really low, then cancel it, don't create the doubt. If it's a little lower than you would like, hopefully you'll be able to prepare better, but it may be your best score. Thank you. Good luck. I hope that it does improve. Okay. Most people take, taking the second time with similar levels of preparation go up or down two points. Yeah, unless you had a particularly bad day or didn't prepare for it or going to devote you know, substantial time to preparing, yeah, people will say, oh, I'm taking it next month. Well, next month may not give you time enough to prepare. So it may be a wait till November kind of thing. Ramona, you're going to get the last question. Ooh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> pressure is on. Pressure. Hard one. Okay. Well, um, there's a lot of rumors going out on the forums saying that if you don't have at least one, like one or more, if not more than one, letter of rec from a professor, that looks bad as opposed to having one letter of rec from your employer and one from a professor. I only have one from a professor. Would that put me at a disadvantage? So, so, so that answer will be re pay attention to the schools. There are some schools who say we only want academic. Some say if you're working next years, you want one academic and one professional. Um, read the questions. That's important because schools have different policies. For years, we did not require letters of recommendation because they were just in many cases, generic. Um, this, the, she was a great student. I had her in my class. She got an A. She'll make a great lawyer. That's not particularly useful. Then we found that the students didn't have letters of recommendation. We were starting to question that, so we started requiring it. At Fordham, it doesn't matter. We want two letters of recommendation. But, but again, pay attention to the schools um, because schools, some schools are pretty clear. If they don't say, then they probably don't care. Uh, we, we try to signal as much as possible to students what we want, because then we're more likely to get what we want. Uh, so, so that's important. The other thing, and you prefaced it with, it's, uh, it's out on the forums. So there are lots of forums out there. There's lots of pre-law stuff. Some of the information is really good. Some of it's really bad. Uh, I think a lot of it is designed to make people crazy. Just be careful. Ask the schools. Most of us are... are, are Again, admissions people are real. Um, call and ask nicely. Don't yell at the person who's calling. Don't yell if you don't like the answer. People do. People yell at staff, so you know, we write it down. Um, I pick up the phones every once in a while um, instead of getting uh, our uh, admissions assistance. The way you interact with schools matter. But please don't believe everything's on, on the forums. It's good. People are getting advice, but but ask the schools. and. Almost all of us yeah, will get back to you, whether you write or call or email or call. I don't send us long letters, um, but whether you email or call, we want you to know what we really think. Again, there, there's, it's really mixed. I, I occasionally see stuff on forums and say, what were you thinking? Or who's this bad advice? And do I want to register and log in and say, this is terrible advice? Um, I haven't yet. Sometimes, some days you really want it. <laughs> right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. This was so, so informative, really generous and candid. And I think everyone here learned a lot.
Good. So, you know, last pitch for Fordham because you know, I'm here from Fordham. You know, we're out all over the country. Come visit our website. Come visit us. Um, find me. I'm, I'm S. Brown at Fordham.edu. I actually respond to emails. Um, and I'll respond to emails even if you're not asking about Fordham, especially if it's financial aid. Um, I'm more than happy to take some time on that. That's really nice of you. Okay, well, I also want to thank everyone who came, and I'm sorry that we did not get to everybody's questions. There were a lot of great questions, and we just didn't have time. But I wish all of you good luck. Have a good night, everyone. Hello, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. And if you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com slash admissions.